welcome to another episode of the Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please note that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice and is purely for the purpose of education. And I'm Dr. Y. If you've been liking what you hear, please give us a five-star rating or review on the podcast app you use to listen. This allows us to continue to create great content. We realize that one of the best parts of emergency medicine is learning how to save a life in almost any situation. There are a lot of great courses out there to learn basic first aid, particularly from the American Red Cross, and we highly recommend that everyone takes a course at some point in their life. So I actually remember, distinctly remember, when I first learned how to do CPR, and it was when I was 18, my first year of college on the rowing team, which in retrospect is definitely too late, and I think they've changed that, like the public school system, I'm hoping has taught some of this basic stuff, but I actually don't know if that's the case. Hopefully it is. <laughs> um, but anyway, I was 18. I was, I was on my rowing team and it was like during our, our hell week thing. And they had an instructor come and we were all like vying for a position on the boat. And I distinctly remember the CPR station becoming like a competitive event to see who can <laughs> hold a hundred to a hundred beats uh, to a hundred to 120 beats per minute. The longest, I swear this is true. <laughs> I, I like these are like some super fit guys. And I remember some people getting up to like 15 or 20 minutes, just pouring sweat, which you've done CPR many times as have I, unfortunately. And it's like, exhausting. there's a reason they have you switch after two minutes. Cause it's yeah. exhausting. And so we were all just like doing it as if it was like some endurance workout, which it honestly could be some really, really sadistic endurance activity because <laughs> it really is like all full body workout. Is a yeah. idea. Oh my gosh. Okay. For sure. <laughs> what about you? Do you have any crazy, or do you have a, remember the first time that you um, learned to do CPR? Yeah. My mom actually made me take a first aid course. And um, I think it was from the Red Cross when I was in middle school or high school before yeah. I started babysitting. Mm, and oh, I'm so glad sense. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was much more confident that I could handle a pediatric emergency at that time. Um, and I think I was probably like 12 or 13 years old. So mm-hmm. I had no idea what to do. But I would definitely recommend that yeah. anyone doing any sort of child care or even elder care is well-versed in first I, aid. I saw at the John Wayne Airport in Orange County. I don't know if you've seen this or flown out there. Yes. There's a CPR a station. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, really this should be, this should be part of like the public school system. Like every kid should learn how to do this. It is, there's literally nothing more important in terms of like saving a life um, without access to an AED than like good quality CPR. Okay. But with that said, we figured that one of the most useful topics we could talk to everyone about is what you can do if someone around you is having a medical emergency. Dr. R, both you and I, unfortunately have had medical emergencies happen on planes. What's happened with yours? Well, mine actually was when I was in residency and there was a guy I was sitting next to on the flight who asked me what I did. And I was like, oh, I'm an emergency medicine resident. And he was like, oh, that's cool. And then later on in the flight, they had a medical emergency and I didn't hear. I had my headphones in, but the guy sitting next to me volunteered me and was like, hey, hey, there's an ER doctor sitting right here. And <laughs> volunteered you. Yeah. The flight attendant walked up, looked at me and she was like, oh no, it's good. We already have a nurse and like kept walking. <laughs> so I have no idea what the emergency actually was, but, um, oh, that's yeah. brutal. They, they just uh, the, like the, the subtle crack at you that we already have a nurse. That's just, I know. I know. That's terrible. So actually my, my, I've had, I, I'm not exaggerating. I think I've at least had five times where I've been on a plane since graduating medical school. So like I'm an actor, doc, actual doctor where 
they've asked for a medical professional on the plane or a medical doctor on the plane. But the one that stands out the most was I was flying back from Boston back to LA and they asked if there was like a medical doctor on board, like, please ring your light <laughs> because we were like, I don't know if there was like some medical convention or something, but I swear it was like, bing, 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 bing. like all these lights started going off. And like, we all just naturally, you know, you ring the light, but you naturally just like get up because you want to figure out where the emergency is. Yeah. And it was actually, it happened to be just like a couple rows in front of me. And it was a guy who had basically like vasovagal coming out of the bathroom. Long story short, like his initial blood pressure was a little bit low and his heart rate was a little bit low, but ultimately things got better and, and was fine. Like we didn't have to do anything. But the funny part of it was, I'm not exaggerating, there were probably 10 doctors that came up to there. He had like a mass general cardiothoracic surgeon, there was a cardiologist, there was a podiatrist, a dentist, I think there was a family medicine doctor. We all wanted to like take a picture because it was so funny. Um, that is the luckiest patient. Yeah, like we, we could have done like a full transplant, like cardiothoracic <laughs> trans. We could have put him on bypass probably. <laughs> but what I actually did learn during that one, especially because I actually opened the medical kit for him. I mean, not like most people need to know this, but like what planes have in terms of um, like what's on on the flight. And it definitely kind of gave me a, a reminder of how lucky we are to work in ERs that have all this stuff that make our lives much easier. But at the end of the day, God forbid, you know, his heart stopped. Like there's some pretty dang simple things that everyone can do that most people, um, you don't need like fancy tools for this kind of thing. For sure. Yeah. I remember seeing a presentation, I think in medical school on what's in the plane flight medical kit. And it's we had it in residency basic. too. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, I, I think it was like a blood pressure cuff mm -hmm. and maybe like a pen <laughs> yeah, it's like some Benadryl. I think there's an aspirin. Some uh, gauze. Yeah, yeah. Like really not much. Yeah. 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 All right. So anyway, don't have an emergency on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some emergencies and some quick things you can do to help save a life. Okay. So the first thing we're going to discuss is a hemorrhage. So that basically means someone is bleeding profusely. And we see a lot of finger bleeds and nose bleeds that can be really hard to stop in the emergency department. And I think we've both also seen some pretty gnarly extremity bleeds, meaning like bleeding from the arms or the legs. So the most important and first thing you should do anytime someone has uncontrolled bleeding is, no surprise here, stop the bleeding. And the best way to do this is by holding pressure or applying a tourniquet. If it's a nose that's bleeding, just have the patient pinch their nose on the outside and continuously hold pressure for at least 15 minutes. Don't check it to see if the bleeding has stopped, just hold the pressure. This helps the bleeding vessel stop by clotting. So if you're in a pinch, you really can use a tampon in the nose to stop the bleeding as well. Uh, I think another thing with that nose pressure too is I see so many people holding pressure over like the actual bony part, like the nasal bone. When actually you need to really hold it just below where the nasal bone comes into yeah. the, the cartilage and like hold hard like it's almost as hard as you can and do it like like dr r said for at least 15 minutes without checking once now if it's an arm or a leg i mean it's actually quite simple to apply a tourniquet you want to apply the device just above where the wound is by above I mean like closer to the center of the body where like the blood vessels are the biggest. And that's kind of in medical terms, we call it proximally. You can use just about anything to make a tourniquet. If you don't have an actual tourniquet on hand for anyone going kind of remote places, hiking, camping, a tourniquet's actually a great multi-purpose tool to keep in your med kit. Um, but honestly, you can use like a piece of rope, a belt, 
a, a backpack strap in a pinch. I mean, clothes, whatever, anything that you can basically cinch down to go as tight as you possibly can. Um, you can actually also for kind of good, like a lever, you can tie a stick or a pen into your knot and then use that stick or pen uh, to twist the strap until it gets tight enough that you stop the blood flow and thus stop the bleeding. And you can look online, like there's good videos on YouTube and stuff for this in terms of kind of how to really use that pen or stick to really get torqued to, to cinch it down as hard as you can. So once a tourniquet is applied, the limb can be at risk of ischemia, which means a lack of blood that the extremity needs to survive. So it's really important that after the tourniquet is applied, uh, that the bleeding person is taken to an appropriate medical center right away. And it goes without saying, don't ever apply a tourniquet to someone's neck. Ever. God, that's sad that we have to say that, but I feel like that's probably been a thing. Um, (laughs) So we also mentioned applying pressure. You can just use a hand to apply pressure over a wound. Again, you want to apply enough pressure that the bleeding stops. Using copious amounts of gauze or a towel, it's actually not helpful because the blood can just soak into the cloth. So you really want to apply pressure directly to the wound if possible. Now, don't worry about removing foreign bodies if there are foreign bodies like a knife or an arrow. Often, these can actually help staunch the blood flow. And when you remove these foreign bodies, you risk causing more damage. Leave this to the medical professionals at the hospital. And honestly, I've had multiple instances where a patient has had some type of penetrating wound or something like that where the foreign body is still there. And I wouldn't say multiple, but I've had some memorable ones. And even in the ER, we don't remove those. Those oftentimes go to the operating room in like a very controlled setting. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, Even as ER doctors, we usually leave it to the surgeons. Yeah, I'm not touching that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so next topic. According to the American Heart Association, around 475,000 Americans per year die from cardiac arrest. Most of these, or 350,000, occur outside of a hospital. So what do you do if you happen to see a cardiac arrest take place? If you start CPR right away, you can double or even triple that person's chance of survival. 90% of people who have cardiac arrest outside of the hospital die, But when CPR is started right away, about 45% of cardiac arrest victims survive. So if you know what to do and act quickly, you might just be able to save a life. Okay, Dr. Y, someone around you just said, oh my goodness, grabbed their chest and said it hurts and then they passed out. So we're assuming from this description that the person is having a cardiac arrest, which means that their heart is no longer functionally able to pump blood to the rest of the body. What do you do? So first, I'd want to clarify that the person was truly pulseless. Um, A first easy thing to do is ask them, hello, are you okay? And if they're not responding, it's like, okay, they're unconscious. Then you want to check a pulse. Ultimately, everything I say after this applies to the assumption that they don't have a pulse. So the basic life support algorithm tells us first that you want to call for help. You want to get people around you to help you do things because it's a lot of things that need to be done. If there are other people with you or even just walking by, tell one of them to call 911 and another person to go find an AED, which is that device that can shock the heart. You'd be surprised, but AEDs are actually often available, I think at like almost every store, restaurant, mall. I think it's a required thing now by most cities to have these basically in any commercial residence. Now, if there's no one else Call 911 so help is on its way and stay on the line with the 911 dispatcher while waiting for the ambulance to arrive. And actually, the 911 dispatchers 
are trained in giving guidance in terms of how to actually appropriately do compressions and that kind of thing. And another important point that relates to psychology is to make sure you look at a person directly and say something like, hey, you, or say their name if you know it, and give that person a specific direction, like call 911 or go get the AED. If you just yell into a crowd, often people assume you're talking to someone else and so no one does anything. And this applies in daily life too. Take a coffee shop, for example. If you look at someone the next table over and ask them to specifically watch your stuff if you need to go to the bathroom, they're much more likely to stop a person if they come to steal your laptop. If you don't specifically ask someone to watch your stuff, a bystander is more likely to assume the person stealing your laptop was supposed to come and get it and say nothing. So always give specific and direct instructions. Also, another point of clarification, the AED, also known as the Automated External Defibrillator, is a device kind of like those paddles you see doctors place on patients in TV shows. It delivers a shock to the patient, if needed, to try to restart the heart. Modern AEDs are pretty cool because they give you specific instructions on where to place the pads on the patient's chest and what to do. Look at the pictures on the pads for directions on where to place them and listen to the instructions from the AED. It will also tell you if a shock is needed to help the patient and will also tell you when to clear or have you and everyone helping stop touching the patient so it can deliver a shock. If you are touching the patient when the shock is delivered, there's a strong chance you will get shocked. Okay, so you've had a friend call 911 and another friend is going to get the AED. So you want to check if the patient is breathing and if the patient has a pulse. If there's no pulse, then this is the key factor that tells you if you need to start CPR. And you need to start CPR right away. CPR is the number one most important thing you can do to save someone's life and help them get enough of their blood pumping around the body and to the heart and the brain that they and those organs survive. Again, CPR is only used if the patient is unconscious and does not have a pulse. CPR works by placing your hands on a patient's chest just over the sternum. And I would emphasize, I I think you would agree with me on this, but let me know if you don't, that if you're even remotely hesitant, like, is that a pulse? Is it not a pulse? Just do CPR. Like it's, you you can't go back from pulseless. And if, you know, if God forbid you do some CPR and someone that has a very, very faint pulse, that can be dealt with. If now, the person the wakes up and tells you to stop, then yeah, stop. Yeah, exactly. But otherwise, you're probably Which I think every go. ER doctor has definitely seen yeah. that. <laughs> it's actually a really cool thing. Okay, so we're back to the CPR. So you've decided to do CPR. You've got the, the you, your hands on the patient's chest just over the sternum. Now, the sternum is that bony hard plate you feel right in the middle of your chest. You take a hand and feel right where it is. Right now, you can do that. You'll want to place one palm flat on that bone on the patient's chest, just around the level of the nipples. Then place your other hand palm side down on top of your first hand. So they're kind of sandwiched on top of each other. The sternum at the level of the nipples is approximately where the heart lies in the chest. And the point of CPR is to use your hands to help the heart muscle pump blood around the body. Then you need to start pressing hard and fast. You should be pushing the patient's chest down at least two inches or five centimeters for our international listeners, and then letting the chest spring back to its normal position. Making sure you don't hold the chest down ensures the blood fills up the heart, and then when you press again, all that blood is pumped to the body. 
it is pretty common for ribs to be broken during CPR. And we can mend broken ribs, but we can't heal hearts and brains that didn't get enough blood pumping through them. So make sure you're pushing hard. You should be pressing into the patient's chest about 100 to 120 times per minute. So keep in mind that's faster than once per second. We often are told that you want to push down on the chest approximately to the rhythm of the song Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. In fact, I have it pulled up so we can demonstrate. All right, so if you're listening to the song, it would be press, 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 press. Okay, so hopefully you get the idea of kind of how fast you should be doing the CPR. It's fast, basically, yeah. is, is the moral of the story, and it's exhausting. It should not feel like, oh, this is like not that bad. I could do this for four or five minutes. Like truly after two minutes, you you will be sweating. It's absolutely exhausting. That is no joke. I've definitely been sore the next day after doing CPR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's always a weird feeling. But yeah, no, I totally have been as well. I actually like threw out my back once, which is like, oh my gosh. Terrible. Okay. So anyway, so CPR is super hard. So because of this, it's really helpful to switch out the person doing CPR about every two minutes or whenever the person doing CPR known as the compressor gets tired. You want to have someone doing the chest compressions, one person attaching the AED and managing it, and another person who can talk on the phone and manage other things going on, making sure the scene is safe. Scene safety is really important. You don't want to be doing CPR in a place that puts everyone in danger, so make sure to check your surroundings and address any dangers. For example, like if you're on a freeway, you need to make sure that you have like enough cars and critical people out there to stop traffic until the police can get there. Yeah, absolutely. In most places in the United States, an ambulance can get to you pretty quickly, so you might have to do 10 or 15 minutes of CPR. In other places, it might take an hour. So again, the most important thing that will save a patient's life in most situations is continuously doing CPR without breaks. Anytime chest compressions are not being done, that patient is basically not breathing or getting blood to their tissues. If you take 60 seconds to do a pulse check, that patient's organs aren't getting blood or oxygen for an entire minute. So minimize interruptions to CPR as much as possible. For example, when switching out who's doing compressions, do it quickly so compressions can start again right away. Have people lined up and ready to go. This is how we do CPR in the hospital. The more people you have to switch with who aren't tired and can do high quality CPR, the better. And by high quality, we mean that the beats are fast enough, so 100 to 120 compressions per minute, and the compressions are deep enough into the chest, two to two and a half inches or five centimeters. We've talked a lot about compressions, but what about rescue breaths? So if the patient is having a cardiac arrest, you don't actually have to do rescue breathing according to the American Heart Association. If this is a random person that you don't know, it may be safer for you not to do the breaths. Really, the most important thing is the compressions. If the patient is a drowning victim, a patient with a breathing problem or drug overdose, an infant, a child, the American Heart Association does still recommend rescue breathing. If you're unsure of what to do or you're by yourself or you just feel overwhelmed, start compressions first, think through your plan and next actions. Chest compressions save lives. If you weren't overwhelmed and you've taken a basic life support course and you know exactly what to do, by all means, follow that training. We aren't going to get into the details of rescue breaths today, but we'll probably get into this more in a future episode. 
Again, we think everyone should take a course to try out CPR. If you witness a cardiac arrest on the street, it can be stressful to recall what to do and in what order. So going through it several times during a course will create some muscle memory and get you more comfortable. Courses also use mannequins that can actually measure if your compressions are fast enough and deep enough, so it's useful to know if you know how to do high-quality CPR. Okay, well that was the basics of two different situations where you can potentially save a life. The first was hemorrhage or massive bleeding. The summary of how to stop hemorrhage is you hold direct pressure to help the clotting process. Don't lift your hands to check the bleeding, just keep holding pressure until definitive help arrives or the patient gets to the hospital. If you have a tourniquet, you can apply that if you have an arm or a leg injury. If you don't have a tourniquet, you can use a rope or a belt. Again, only in the case of an arm or leg injury that doesn't stop bleeding with direct pressure. The second situation was cardiac arrest. The key points of this situation are to check for pulse and breathing, call 911, call for help, and start chest compressions right away if there's no pulse. If you've never checked a pulse before, it's pretty easy. Let's try to find these three pulses on your body right now. The first is on your wrist, known as the radial artery pulse. Flip your wrist over so you're looking at the bottom or the ventral side, the same side as the palm of your hand. You want to lightly put your pointer finger and your middle finger over the side of your wrist that your thumb is on, just where your thumb meets your wrist, again, on the underside of your wrist. So you should feel rhythmic beating with somewhere around 60 to 100 beats per minute. The second place is your carotid pulse. You want to feel your neck just under your jaw with your pointer finger and middle finger. The third place is the femoral pulse. You'll be able to feel this pulse again with your first and third fingers on the front of your leg near the groin where your leg sort of meets your abdomen. There are a lot of videos and images online if you need extra help finding any of these. To actually take a pulse, use a wristwatch or a timer. The heart rate or pulse is recorded as beats per minute. You don't actually have to count beats for a whole minute, luckily. You can count beats for 10 seconds and then multiply by 6, or count for 15 seconds and multiply by 4, or so on. The number you get is the heart rate. Well, that about just kind of wraps it up for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Be sure to send this episode to someone you know who might want to learn about how to be prepared to save a life. Check out CPR courses near you so you can actually try out these skills. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, so leave us a comment or reach out to us on Instagram at The Emergency Docs. Until next time. Thank you.